Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. By now, you're probably familiar with the failures of California's unemployment benefit system during the pandemic, falling victim to tens of billions of dollars in rampant fraud, while leaving millions of workers who lost their jobs when COVID hit without the money to cover basic needs. A new investigation by CalMatters looks at how our state's Employment Development Department came to process so many fraudulent claims and the extent of the impact of denied or delayed legitimate claims on people's lives. The state is now looking to spend more than a billion dollars to try and fix what went wrong. We'll learn more about that after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In March of 2020, on the eve of Governor Newsom ordering Californians to stay home in the face of a deadly virus, State Labor Secretary at the time, Julie Su, wrote an email to the head of California's Employment Development Department, asking if the state's unemployment system was ready for whatever came next. Su asked, do we need to do anything to shore it up at this time to prevent problems, delays, or worse, system crash? The agency's IT director wrote back the next day, system is performing fantastic. We now know in the months and years that followed, the system would pay out tens of billions of dollars in fraudulent unemployment claims while flagging or denying legitimate ones. That email exchange I just read is part of thousands of internal documents CalMatters reporter Lauren Hepler recently gained access to for her new investigative series called California's Unemployment Crash. Lauren Hepler joins me now. Welcome back, Lauren. Thank you. Hey, so we still don't know, right, how much money the state really lost to unemployment fraud in those early years of the pandemic? That's right. This is still kind of one of the big mysteries of the pandemic, not just in California, but across the country. And I should say another interesting thing to note, like there was so much attention on unemployment fraud. That's also true for what happened with the small business loans and other programs. It was just five trillion dollars that kind of flooded out. And we still don't have a good accounting Uh, in California. The figures tend to range from about 20 to 30 billion dollars that were likely lost. But again, we do not have a precise estimate. And 
the agency in the state has said that they're trying to recoup some of those losses, but but what's happening there? Yeah, there's really a whole kind of cottage industry of pandemic fraud investigators that have sprung up, everyone from county district attorneys to state officials, folks at the FBI and the Secret Service are looking into big scams. Um, and they've clawed back in California so far just shy of $2 billion. Um, mm. But there's a lot of folks that say, you know, this kind of pay and chase approach where you the money floods out and then you try to get it back after the fact does not have a history of recouping the bulk of what was lost. There are some numbers, though, that you reported in terms of how many claims were improperly delayed or denied. Where is that at? Yeah, so those have also bounced around. What we know is that 5 million unemployment payments were delayed. That's about one in every eight Californians being accounted for in that figure. Um, At least a million claims were improperly denied, though some other figures um, by like a governor-appointed task force found that 3 million claims in the bulk of it went just when things were going completely crazy in the summer of 2020 were denied because folks had not mailed in documents to prove their identity when at that time photos showed just boxes and boxes of unopened mail, like 450 pounds of mail a day. So the scale of this is still just crazy to try to wrap your head around. Wow. So the documents may have been arriving, but they weren't being opened. That 5 million figure, that 1 million figure of improper denials, how many are still unresolved? Those numbers could change, right? How many cases are still out there? Yeah. So with appeals cases that are still, it takes about five, six months to even get a hearing on an appeal right now um, with an employment system. And at least 130,000 people are still in that process. Though I have to tell you, I've heard from folks even in the last week since this series published that they're still like, I, you know, I'm still out $10,000, even more in some cases, and I just don't know what to do. So in, in some ways, that's another area where we'll never truly have a figure for how many people slip through the cracks. Wow. So this really is still an incredibly live issue, (laughs) I guess is the best way that I can put it. Let me just invite listeners to join the conversation to share if they've been affected by the problems at EDD, especially in the early years of the pandemic. Are they still grappling with the long-term impacts of either being denied or delayed unemployment funds? Maybe you worked at EDD and or work there now and can give us some insight into what the agency is like, how it operates, or what your experience was as well. The email address is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. So Lauren, in your investigative series, you take us back to sort of the beginning of the pandemic when then Labor Secretary Julie Su started asking about the ability of the system to handle a possible onslaught of unemployment claims. And uh, I read that the head of IT said the system itself was fine, but the EDD director, uh, Hilliard at the time, Director Hilliard, did say that it could take months to a year to get payments out based on some of the predictions of the potential number of people who would be out of work with the pandemic hitting, right? Yeah, there was this whole conversation. And frankly, we're still waiting on more documents to fully understand this. But there was a lot of conversation about what requirements should we maybe waive, like the normal safeguards that we have in place to try to prevent fraud, but also verify identities. Um, and so there was a lot of conversation in the early days about like, okay, should, what could we suspend, but maybe turn out okay. Um, so that's kind of what you see in those emails where it's talking about if we don't change anything, it's going to be like well into next year. 
And what we now know is that some changes were made. And in fact, we still faced these massive delays. So what folks have described to me kind of happened is like there were we know we can talk more about this, but we know back to the Great Recession, even before that, there were a lot of red flags and failed reforms in EDD's system. And the pandemic was really just kind of the perfect storm to tip all of that over the edge. And to be fair, the folks at EDD, the state officials, they they were under a tremendous amount of pressure to get payments out quickly, right? Especially given the scale of the situation. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of the perfect storm element. Folks described to me, folks at EDD described to me how they just kind of walked in shock as the job losses, the layoff numbers just flew past any projections they had from a recession. Because obviously the pandemic with the public health shutdowns we had was just completely unprecedented in kind of like the modern age. Um, So it's like, of course, how do you prepare for that exactly? Uh, But then that kind kind of combined with these systemic problems that had long been an issue at EDD. Yeah. Okay. So then when in May, the federal government rolled out its pandemic unemployment assistance program, the funds that EDD was supposed to disperse, what happened? Why was that a major sort of turning point, a major driver of the unprecedented fraud that we would ultimately see? It's a great question because this program is called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. And it was this totally new thing because gig work and contract work has grown so much recently in California and across the U.S. But it's not those workers are not eligible for kind of, quote unquote, normal or traditional unemployment benefits. So the federal government was like, OK, we've got to respond to this. This is millions and millions of people. Let's stand up an entirely new program. So it makes sense. But then in practice, it might not be surprising to to hear that, that that was a pretty turbulent process. Um, and basically what happened was that um, at, at the beginning of that program, it was like, we've just got to get money out the door as fast as possible. So there's like state websites in California that say, no, you do not have to submit any documents with your claim. So what we now know from state and federal reports is that that really opened the floodgates for fraud as well, since no documents were being checked. It was just everyone and their mom was filing claims in California and other states. This, this part was not unique to California. California. And the EDD now says that about 95% of the pandemic fraud was probably in this federal program. So here again, you've got a lot of kind of finger pointing between state and federal officials about, you know, whose who's fault this ultimately was and um, the root of the confusion that we later saw when real people got trapped in the confusion. Yeah. So, so why was the system so easy to game? They automated a lot of it, right? And a large proportion of those applications. Yes, that's right. So what a governor appointed strike team, strike team, it's like a task force found in the summer of 2020 was that about 60% of claims, including many that would later turn out to be suspected of fraud, were flying through this automated process. They were just filling out the applications online. You get your EDD debit card and you're off to the races. But about 40% of claims, so those like millions of folks who got caught up in the delays and things, things, um, were getting rerouted for manual processing. So that's where real people who were stretched super thin, the, the EDD workers just had so much stress on them at this time, were having to go through and try to manually uh, verify people's identities. So then you run into issues like the mail I mentioned. Folks are mailing stuff in, but no one's opening the mail. Um, the EDD systems are also really old. They've been compared to like going on an archaeological dig to make sense of these programs that go back to the 1970s. 
70s. So data kind of can get lost in those programs. And it just created a whole slew of issues. Wow. Who were the people who were committing the fraud? What have you learned about who tended to be and, and how what the makeup was of people who were able to get this money from the state? Yeah, so fraud experts have told me it was every type of fraud under the sun. So the ones that the Secret Service and the FBI are still really interested in are hackers that were maybe affiliated with like hostile foreign governments. So um, that's a big area. We don't know a ton about how much that happened specifically in California versus other states, but there's cyber war groups from China, from Russia that have been implicated in some of this. Um, There was also a lot of emphasis on groups in Nigeria. So a lot of folks have maybe heard of these social engineering scams where someone will reach out to you with like some kind of crazy backstory and they're trying to get information out of you. Like, hey, I have an inheritance for you. If you just send me this information, we'll give it to you. Um, so those kind of merged into the pandemic fraud at a certain point. And then it, the ones that were much more universal, because again, for some of these programs, you didn't have to submit any documents. So there are instances of like teenagers, of guardians, and variety scammers everywhere that were just buying uh, stolen information on social media or some, in some cases on the dark web and using those to file claims. It's also instances of totally fake names like Poopy Britches was one that got through for the self-employed worker program. Um, so the, the whole picture is very chaotic. But I think the, the problems really arose, A, like we still don't know how much money was lost. But then when the state tried to crack down, they went really aggressive and ended up trapping a lot of real workers as well. The EDD says that the feds didn't provide enough guidance to them, right? Is that their main reason that they say for their, that they weren't able to deal with all of it, this onslaught? Yeah, they say, look, this program was stood up in a couple of weeks during an unprecedented health crisis and states, because every state's unemployment system is different. That's definitely true. States were kind of left to fend for themselves is what they say. But again, state officials push back and say, hey, look, there are some basic checks you could have done and your systems could have been in better shape to begin with. We're talking with Lauren Hepler, who's on a four-part investigative series for Cal Matters called California's Unemployment Crash, all about the failure of California's Employment Development Department during the pandemic. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your own experiences related to this quote-unquote crash and also with your questions. We'll have more with you and with Lauren after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're speaking this hour with CalMatters reporter Lauren Hepler, who recently gained access to thousands of internal documents during the early years of the pandemic uh, for the state's employment development department. And it's her new investigative series called California's Unemployment Crash that goes through how California ended up paying tens of billions of dollars in fraudulent claims while denying or delaying legitimate relief to people who needed it most. And uh, you are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, Instagram, at KQED Forum. Were you affected by the problems at EDD, especially in those early years of the pandemic, and still grappling with long-term impacts? Do you or did you work for EDD? What can you tell us about the agency? What questions do you have about potential relief or any tips or advice you might give to listeners who are still experiencing issues related to EDD. Let me go to Tracy in San Mateo. Tracy, you're on. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm well. What's on your mind, Tracy? Um, So, yeah, there's a whole group of us uh, during um, the pandemic whose hours were reduced substantially. um, And we work like that for months. And when we all applied for EDD, we were denied. Um, we were denied any money. We were also denied the um, whatever the bonus money that was going on then. Everybody was getting, I think, was it 600 a week extra or something? Um, it was very frustrating. You know, we were, I ended up, I'm still in debt from that time. And I've not heard one reporter or anybody talk about all those millions of workers, those of us whose hours were reduced um, for a length of time, and were never we we didn't we didn't qualify for EDD. Mm. Wow! Um, they just outright just just denied us, and no one talks about those workers. If you were you had to be either completely unemployed, um, and of course because we were still our hours were only reduced, we couldn't just quit. Because, you know, like so many people did, at least I didn't. I found that very unethical. Um, But, yeah, and then we ended up finally our hours went back up uh, because we were essential workers. And I worked all through COVID. Mm. Um, Not once did I take any time off. So what about those? Why isn't anybody reporting about those workers or where where when are we going to be represented during that time? Thanks. I'm sure. A significant reduction in hours would would be a significant financial impact, but I'm wondering if that would fall under the purview of EDD, um, Lauren Hepler. Yeah, it's a great point. I really appreciate the caller bringing that up because one thing that a lot of uh, like labor lawyers and unemployment experts have said is that the pandemic really laid bare the fact that we have these huge holes in our job safety net in California. So that's one really good example. I mentioned the self-employed workers that the feds did scramble to try to help. Um, but one of the big questions now, the, these labor lawyers and advocates say, okay, everyone was so freaked out about the fraud during the pandemic, but are they going to over? correct for that and not answer these bigger questions about like what workers are we set up to serve. So this is very much a live issue. And I would encourage folks to get in touch with your elected representatives because these conversations are happening now in the state capitol. 
Belinda writes, I was denied short-term disability benefits during this year when I got COVID. I received two weeks of pandemic pay from my workplace, but I was sick longer. I applied to STD at EDD on time with all the forms filled out, but was denied with no reason given. When I recovered, I had the energy to appeal. I am tired of having to pursue my legitimate right. I am now unemployed, and it took EDD more than six weeks to approve my unemployment benefits, during which I had to break my 401k. I am still waiting on CalFresh, a Medi-Cal benefit, after more than one month. How does a person with COVID live within this system when the cost of living and inflation conspire against you? I am trying to decide if I should continue appealing or if I should drop it due to administrative fatigue on my part. Lauren, the state basically, you were talking before the break about how, yes, you know, unemployment benefits, unemployment benefit systems, these are nationwide. There are systems that are operating differently across the state. How is the way that California did it especially problematic? And and how did that contribute to the kinds of effects that we saw here? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think a lot of it goes back to just EDD's own history. So uh, as far back as like the Great Recession, there were state audits saying, you know, nine out of every 10 phone calls are not being answered at the EDD's call centers. There are long delays. So these are kind of red flags that we knew were there. There's also a whole history of the EDD uh, like briefly trying and then reversing course on this anti-fraud technology. So it's like they were very aware that a lot of these things could potentially be an issue, but there was just never the follow through to make sure the changes were made. Um, And folks at EDD have told me, you know, part of that is that the legislators and the governor tend to stop paying attention after recessions when unemployment drops. It's like, okay, we move back on to other priorities. The budget goes down. Maybe the staffing goes down. So a lot of this is very cyclical. There's a lot of deja vu. But what we ultimately know is that when things did go south during COVID, again, at a scale way beyond anyone would have really predicted, uh, as few as one in 1,000 callers were getting through to the call centers. These payment delays, yeah, quickly climbed into the millions. So just the number of people impacted um, was really beyond what anyone saw coming. When it came to heading off fraud, we saw a lot of headlines related to incarcerated people gaming the system. How did California check its roles against prisons, essentially? They did not which was another important difference between California and other states. So it was in the minority of states that didn't uh, cross-check prison roles and unemployment roles. They do now. That was a, a law change that was made after the pandemic. Uh, there were a couple other things like that that are important to note, like California is one of only three states that does not just have direct deposit for unemployment money. Um, it also is one of four states that hasn't changed its unemployment tax system since the 1980s. So again, Again, these are ways that the system um, has clearly needed some changes for a long time. And for a lot of reasons, those changes were just were not made. And just remind listeners what that 1980s tax law is. Yeah, so it's basically it gets a little technical, but it's basically like the proportion of a worker's wages that the state collects unemployment taxes on. And so California only taxes the first $7,000 of earnings for workers. And you compare that to states like Oregon or Washington, well, they'll tax a portion of up to the worker's first $60,000. So what that means in California is just that we have way less money going into the unemployment system. So when things go south, 
that means we have to borrow money to keep paying benefits. And right now, still, California is $19 billion in debt to the federal government. So kind of this whole financial mess, again, it sounds technical and people are like, you know, no one wants to think about raising taxes. But when it comes down to it, it's just kind of this like financial quicksand underneath this entire issue. Let me go to caller Bob in Rohnert Park. Hi, Bob, you're on. Hi, thanks. So at the beginning of this year, which was, of course, post-pandemic, I applied for unemployment. And um, the problem with my uh, claim was that the verification process didn't really work. I think it was a technological issue because I um, scanned the appropriate documents. I uploaded them to their DocuSign uh the DocuSign website that they use, and everything looked beautiful in the preview. My images were beautiful. I submitted them, and then um, nothing happened, and many phone calls. Uh, eventually, I did get through to a verification worker who said, well, I, I can't, you're, you're going to have to do this over again because your driver's license is, you know, about the size of a postage stamp. And I said, well, it, you know, I, I sent big images, and the DocuSign, it looked beautiful. I said, can't you zoom in? She says, no, that doesn't work. Um, and so um, obviously there are some technological problems. What I eventually did was I took all those images and I put them into a PDF file and uploaded that through the DocuSign, and that went through immediately. So there are some big technological issues. I don't know what sort of system the verification workers are using, but it doesn't seem to be completely compatible with the DocuSign um, application, which is how the, uh, those verification documents are uploaded. Yeah. Well, Bob, I'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that because I'm sure just getting to that stage of, of talking to someone, as you say, took quite some time and then having that be sort of the response. Um, but do you want to say a little bit more, Lauren, just about, I mean, you, you touched on how the technology is so antiquated, um, but I don't know if there's anything you want to add based on Bob's experience. Yeah, no, that's a big one. The identity verification issues. I had folks tell me that during like the early days of the pandemic, when things were still totally shut down, the mask mandates were in place, they were having to like go find a Kinko's to try to fax stuff to the EDD. So those types of communication issues have really been persistent. And I think the big question now is what's going to happen as we look ahead. Because the EDD's got more than a billion dollars that they're planning to spend over the next five years. And one of the things they're preparing to spend money on is new longer term identity verification processes. So this is another area to watch really closely. Well, Lewis writes, during the pandemic, I was running into issues with my claim. It was only when I reached out to my local state senator's office, Senator Bell, in August of 2020, that I was able to get my issue looked into and fixed. Lauren, I want to talk to you about the extent of the human toll. We we know that there was an, a tremendous one, but just the degree and how far it went uh, is is really quite incredible. And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit, you know, from from people like Danny Ramos, who had to basically move um, to others who, uh, you know, ended up having to deal with selling their homes and just incredible, incredible impacts. 
Yes, definitely. And one caller mentioned debt. That's another one. A lot of folks had to drain their retirement savings or borrow high interest loans to try to to make it while they were waiting for delayed payments. But you mentioned Danny Ramos. He's a construction worker who was living in Carlsbad at the time. And I think his case shows really how uh, the unemployment crisis collided with the state's housing crisis in a big way. That's just something that's come up over and over again in interviews. And in Danny's case, he was he was in a pretty good spot. He had steady construction work in Carlsbad. He was living with his then fiance and three kids and building his credit score, you know, all the things people are concerned about, like in, in normal, quote unquote, normal times. Um, and then COVID hits, he loses his job and files for unemployment. And in his case, he told a state appeals judge he just never got the debit card to send the money. We know there was also a lot of fraud hitting the debit card. So there's a lot of confusion there. But so he can see on paper that he's got $8,000 in his account, but he can't actually access the money. So in his case, he just said, oh, my God, like, how am I going to pay my rent? And what he ultimately did to try to avoid, you know, dinging um, his financial records and getting an eviction on his record or anything like that, he just said, you know what, I'm going to pack up and move. And in his case, he was like, I really need to cut my costs. So he moved across the Mexico border to Tecate and split up. His his uh, fiance took the kids to stay with family in the Midwest. So when you look at a case like that, it's like there's this housing impact. It impacts families and their ability to, to stay together and just kind of enjoy life. And then obviously the financial toll is huge. Yeah. And then you devoted your second piece in the series to the story of, of Shane Baylog. Tell us a little bit about what happened to Shane. Yeah, so Shane uh, was 28 years old. He's from Garden Grove in Southern California, big surfer and a car fanatic. And right until the pandemic shutdowns happened, he had a job that he really loved. It was a traveling sales job. He actually sold equipment, um, like specialized lights for dentists and doctors to use. Um, And so a traveling sales job, obviously, the airlines all shut down. Everything shut down in March 2020. So he lost his job overnight. Um, And from what his family has told me, he then pretty quickly filed for unemployment benefits, but kind of like Danny Ramos, who I was just talking about, he filed and then he just didn't actually get any money. And um, one of the things his mom, Patty Baylock, has shared with me is that um, she has Shane's cell phone and has gone through his call logs and seen he was just calling dozens of times. Um, Like on June 24th, he called the EDD 17 times in a row. And the really tragic thing in Shane's case is that he died by suicide three days later on June 27th, 2020. It was three days before his 29th birthday. Um, and, I mean, it's it's just, like, a horrific thing to imagine. And his family, of course, they say that, you know, they, they do wonder how the unemployment struggle played into kind of, like, his mental state. They do also think that, you know, it's suicide is almost always a result of multiple factors is what the research shows. And his family also thinks, you know, it's, like, in addition to the financial strain of not having that unemployment money, Shane was waiting for almost $12,000 in his account. Um, he was also, he's very gregarious, so he, he was feeling really isolated during the COVID shutdowns, a lot of anxiety there. Um, so it, it's, again, multiple factors, but it's just a really kind of shocking example of, of the situation folks were in. Yeah, and, and Shane's parents really did want to get his story out. And you have some tape of his mother and father talking about him that I'd like to play. I didn't want to bother anybody with, with any 
any of his dilemmas, any of his problems, which is why when we would ask him, hey, do you need money? And he'd say, no, I'm good. I'm good, really. I'm good, mom and dad. I said, okay. He called, because I know the office opens at 8. He would be calling at 7.45, 7.50, over and over again. He had called him 17 times in a row. 17. And he wasn't trying to be fraudulent. And he was honest. And, um, you know, anything that you take away from this is that that's what Shane was. He was very honest. That's Glenn and Patty Baylaw, parents of Shane Baylaw, recording a recording from an interview that my guest Lauren Hepler conducted about the impact of the incredible meltdown at EDD during the early years of the pandemic when Shane was unable to get his $12,000 or so in his unemployment account. Um, Two weeks after he died, Shane's widow did get notified that his EDD's benefits, $11,700 worth, would be dispersed. It had finally been approved. You talked about the combination of things, the financial stress and the frustration about not getting, not being able to access his unemployment and the pandemic isolation all combined to contribute to, to Shane and what happened to him. But you also did talk with Dr. Jonathan Singer about the connection between unemployment and mental health and the devastation that it can cause. What did you learn there? Yeah, so Dr. Singer talked about how there we have research from past recessions. This hasn't come out about COVID yet. We're going to need to see in the years to come what we learn about sort of the specific impacts of this crisis. But from past recessions, we know that there is a correlation between higher unemployment and increases in suicide rates, particularly among men. Um, there's some speculation that that can potentially be related to gender stereotypes where a lot of men's self-purpose and... Um, social connection comes from work, uh, which is something that Shane's parents said really resonated with them. Um, there's also been some some interesting research, though, on what programs that help with financial stability, so things like increasing minimum wage or paid sick days, uh, how those impact suicide rates. And they've found that the more you increase those supports to help with financial necessities, um, you actually do start to see a decline in suicide rates in some instances. Um, and I think that dovetails also what an academic at UC Davis, Amy Barnhorst, told me. Um, she's also a doctor. And she said, you know, the more we can help people meet their basic needs, like make sure their housing is covered, make sure they've got good access to health care, the better off we'll be. And I think that's ultimately the tragedy in all of this that happened with unemployment in California. The, the programs were there. They were expanded to help more people. But ultimately, folks fell through the cracks. Yeah. We're talking with Lauren Hepler about the financial and the human toll of the unemployment system in the state of California, struggling to meet the needs of people during the pandemic, struggling to meet the onslaught of need during the pandemic. And you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at kqed forum. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Quote, lose your job, file for unemployment, get a few hundred dollars a week from the state to pay for essentials while you find a new gig. It sounds simple in theory, but that's far from the reality that many workers experienced when the state's job safety net unraveled during the pandemic. That's from Lauren Hepler's series, California's Unemployment Crash, a four-part investigative series for Cal Matters. And you, our listeners, are sharing your questions or comments about that job safety net unraveling at 866-733-6786. And let me go to caller Bob in San Jose. Bob, you're on. Hi. I wanted to echo some of the things that some other callers have said. It's just very surprising to me that no one I know, not a single person, has had a positive experience attempting to get unemployment. And for me, I had a rather scary experience. Um was denied. I applied a second time, and whatever paperwork issue was solved, and I was told I was going to get 450 bucks a week uh, through a debit card. But that debit card never showed up. And I immediately started getting spam calls and texts on my phone trying to steal my debit card information. So I never got the card. I never told anyone I was applying for unemployment, never posted about it online. Someone at EDD gave my number to someone else. There's no other way that could have happened. And I was never able to get through to talk to a real person on the phone. I sent in plenty of paper documentation. It just infuriating and really unacceptable way for any agency to work. Um, that's my um, I'm sorry, that is scary. And gosh, Lauren, it reminds me of your reporting around the fact that EDD wasn't so great about not posting sensitive information like social security numbers on paper and sending them out to people, right? Oof, yeah. So this is another one that goes back to at least the Great Recession. Uh, Lawmakers have been saying, why are you mailing out documents with full social security numbers? Stop doing that as uh, far back as like 2015. Um, And what we know is, unfortunately, during the pandemic and the first months of the pandemic, EDD mailed out 38 million letters with full social security numbers and contact information. So that that obviously raises tons of concerns about data security. But this point about the debit cards in particular is interesting because um, it's also not just EDD that runs the payment program. They contract with Bank of America to send out those debit cards. And there has been a ton of finger pointing back and forth between the bank and the state about what went wrong with those payment situations. Um, And 
basically we know that a lot of folks had their accounts sort of frozen as these account as this fraud fear kind of grew um and and that ultimately left folks yeah not having money to be able to pay their bills um and then like the caller said this is something that kind of we continue to hear reports like this um so it's another one i i happen to know that bank of america is almost they're almost done with their contract so the state's going to have another payment contractor coming online in in the next year or so so that is going to be very interesting to see if we still continue to hear these sorts of issues with debit cards or if the state finally gets it together to offer like a direct deposit option and then you don't have to deal with some of these concerns. Well, this listener writes, at the start of the pandemic, A, A writes, at the start of the pandemic, my relative expected to work the whole summer as a musician. All gigs were canceled in March. They didn't apply for unemployment because of news about all the people who weren't getting their applications processed. Then we heard about all the fraud. It's been so discouraging now for the same person as a student to be constantly hit by rules that threaten or take away student aid at such a hard time of life. While the state is working so hard to catch the fraudsters, could they also please realize those who play by the rules also were hit by the pandemic and the chaos of it and still need grace that has been even less forthcoming because of the fraudsters. And you've talked about this, just about how much EDD ultimately then overcorrected in reaction to all of the fraud. And that led to just the the millions, the numbers and more than three million or so that um, that were unable to get payments when they were legitimate. <clears throat> I do want to ask you about the next steps that you just mentioned, like a new contractor to do payments and so on. What is EDD Next? How is that supposed to fix some of the issues? Yeah, so EDD Next is a $1.2 billion five-year plan to finally modernize the the EDD systems. Uh, And they have tried this before. After the Great Recession, Deloitte was hired for a contract that um, eventually exceeded more than $150 million to try to fix some of these things, to have a better system for managing claims as they come in. So that's more organized, less chaotic, um, to help with the call centers. But we're about to try this again. Um, And it's already underway, actually. Salesforce has already been paid um, tens of millions of dollars to build a new online application system. Amazon technology is being used uh, to redo the call centers. We should see those rolling out, like starting at the end of this year. Um, And, you know, a lot of the message I got from higher ups at EDD was asking people to, to hang in there. They're working on these things that they know were kind of the biggest pain points during the pandemic. And one thing they say they're doing differently this time around is making the the project more what they call like modular. So it's not just one contractor gets a billion dollars to fix all of this. They have a bunch of different things for the online system, for the call centers, for identity verification, like a caller mentioned. Um, so these are going to be changes that are rolling out over time. And I think the question... Uh, given that we know there's so many issues with the existing system, is how do you oversee all of those things, make sure they talk to each other and that they work together so that we don't continue to have this issue where, where folks are getting discouraged and, and not wanting to, you know, see the process through? Yeah. Well, Christina writes, and I should tell listeners that we are actually needing to reset our phone system. So for those who've been trying to get through on our phones, we are having some technical issues. And if you'd like, you may have better luck with posting your comment online, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, Twitter, at KQED Forum. 
Christina writes, California's EDD is shameful, is a shameful failure with a capital fail. If it doesn't destroy your life, it'll destroy your soul or both. My husband's claims were stopped after he was laid off during the pandemic. They never explained why. Thank goodness he had savings to rely on. But folks without financial resources are destroyed, as your program illustrates. I tried to apply in 2023 after contracting COVID and being off work for three weeks in September. ID me kept saying my account was verified, but would ask me to re submit a film of my face over six times following without id me one can't access edd.id.me offers no human support they should never have closed the physical offices do you want to say why physical offices were closed just as a little history lesson yeah so the history of this goes back to the 1990s in 1993 there was a horrific incident um, where a man in southern california walked into an edd office and opened fire. He killed three people in the office. He killed a police officer. And then he was later shot in the parking lot of another EDD office. Um, So workers at the time shared their concerns with media. They said, we need to have separation from the public. Um, So, you know, that's very understandable that you then need to make changes to your system to ensure your workers are safe. But a lot of folks I've talked with, including people who work at EDD, they say, you know, it's been a challenge um, when you kind of don't have that in-person support. the EDD is closed for most walk-in unemployment services uh, ever since. Um, so instead, that means you need to rely a lot on the call centers and the online systems and all these things that we're unfortunately talking about have not historically worked well. Um, so, so that history um, is is pretty jarring. And I will note that during the pandemic, we requested some data from EDD um, because uh, their phone operators have to report anytime there is a violent threat. So they tracked 483 threats of self-harm to the anecdote we shared earlier about suicide and um, folks being put into really dire situations. Um, They also reported 671 threats of violence against the EDD or its personnel. So I think that really just drives home kind of how dire the situation was, how high stakes this can often feel. Yes. The listener writes, I was on unemployment for the whole COVID period with extensions. I consider myself a veteran of the systemic challenges we all encountered. One persistent annoyance was quarterly audits that mysteriously suspended payments in my claim. Email queries were responded to with template language, template language that did not fit my case. Getting through to the call center was like winning the lottery. When I finally got through, the agent would clear my record and the missing payments would show up in my account. Why was the burden of responding to the audits out on me? Was this part of an attempt to prevent fraud? Why didn't these audits work? Another listener writes, who, if anyone, is being held to account? This wasn't an overnight problem. It was, by all reporting, years, if not decades, in the making. How much of it was due to departmental mismanagement and incompetence? And how much was due to not getting funding to get new equipment, making it necessary to hold everything together? Why aren't the higher-ups who contributed to this catastrophe being held accountable? You certainly go back a significant number of years. You touched on uh, the uh, system, the fraud detection system that was under contract and then taken out of contract. That was the Pandera solution system that was supposed to detect, that was actually detecting quite a bit of fraud when they initiated the contract and then they stopped it suddenly. Do you want to just say a little bit more why they, they stopped a system that seemed to be doing a good job of detecting fraud at EDD? 
Yeah, so this goes back to, like I mentioned the last time, things went really bad during the Great Recession. There was this whole push of, okay, we're going to modernize our systems. They rolled out this experimental fraud technology, basically combed public and private databases to flag, like, oh, this person looks like they're a potential inmate, which we know folks who are incarcerated are not eligible for unemployment. So it would do simple things like that. And it would also track, like, suspicious addresses or phone numbers or foreign IP addresses that were showing up repeatedly in claims. Um, So I talked to one detective, a fraud detective at EDD, who said he was wading through up to like 300 alerts about fraud a day. And he was really pushing, you know, let's hire more staff to follow up on these leads. Let's expand the contract. But then the plug was suddenly pulled in 2016. So, you know, several years before anyone had ever heard of COVID. Um, And the state's official line is that, you know, the federal funding wasn't there to continue doing that. I will say that was about a $2 million a year contract contract versus Deloitte at the time was paid more than $150 million to, to work on system upgrades that audits later found buckled. So some of this seems like a question about where are we prioritizing our spending and tracking those investments. Um, but the other thing folks who were in law enforcement at the time and were privy to details about this contract, they said, is, you know, really what it showed was that, like, the, the fraud was just kind of overwhelming. We know this was at a time when, uh, you know, banks were getting hacked, healthcare providers were getting hacked, cyber attacks are, you know, have become a bigger and bigger issue across industries. And it, from all, what we know now, it just seems like EDD was not wanting to wade into all of that. And unfortunately, what transpired after was this historic wave of fraud during the pandemic. We're talking with Lauren Hepler about our series, California's Unemployment Crash, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Rocky writes, I worked in a state Senate district office during the pandemic. Practically all we did was help people with their terrible EDD experience for more than two years. EDD way overcompensated for the fraud, stranding legitimate claimants for weeks, up to six months to get an interview. And we were the only path for many to get answers. The EDD legislative staff was incredibly helpful in working with us to their credit. But the people at the top of the agency and state labor department did a terrible job with this crisis and kept renewing contracts with Bank of America and IDME that stranded people. Thanks for exposing how this disaster affected struggling Californians and the need to finally reform EDD in a customer-friendly way. It is an insurance insurance program that people pay into and should be able to access when things get tough. Hmm, Rocky, thanks for sharing your direct experience as well. This listener wants to know, is there a way to anonymously report someone if you know someone who took advantage of the program, even though they did not need it? There are several channels to do that um, at the state and federal level. If you go to the EDD's website, they have a section on reporting fraud. Uh, so, so that is there. And then do you want to just quickly give a few resources for people who are still struggling with fallout or impact or even with unresolved claims? Yeah, as Rocky's last message noted, um, I've talked to a lot of folks who have ultimately gone through their state assembly member or their state senator. You can look those up online, um, just email or call their office. I had a friend recently who had a baby and she wasn't able to get her short-term disability benefits through the state and it was only resolved when she went to her state assembly representative. Um, So that's 
something that a lot of folks continue to do. If you have a case that involves um, kind of more legal back and forth, like maybe you're already in the appeals phase or um, there's something about your case that has gotten complicated and often by no fault of your own, but just if uh, something was wrong in your record or things like that, a lot of folks are going to labor lawyers as well. And there are some great um, free services out there like Legal Aid at Work is a group in San Francisco. There's also the Center for Workers' Rights in Sacramento. Um, So those are a few channels where I know folks have had some luck. Well, Mike writes, I want to add my positive review of EDD during the pandemic. While I did have trouble getting through by phone, my overall experience with the system was okay. However, the system definitely needs modernization, and this should be the time. My takeaway from this program is how close to the edge all our working class is. But that's another episode. Yes, but it is all very connected, Mike, and I appreciate you weighing in on what you're saying. So there is a figure you gave that really jumped out at me, Lauren, which is the $19 billion that California owes the federal government. Um, What do you think about what that will mean for us as a state already facing deficits? Yeah, I mean, it it raises kind of big questions about how California is going to confront this spending hole that we're in. Uh, So as it stands, business taxes will be used to cover the bulk of that debt. Something similar did happen after the Great Recession. California went into debt because, again, its system, its tax system is really old from the 1980s, and it's not equipped for these big spikes in layoffs that we see around recessions or the pandemic. Um, So basically what happens is then businesses pay a small increase. Um, it's about 0.3% increase. Um, it depends. The rates vary a bit, but um, it they'll pay that over the next several years. But business groups are saying, hey, look, we're still in this kind of very weird, uncertain economic time. This could be bad for hiring itself. Um, so they're pushing the governor to use taxpayer money to pay off some of that debt. So we expect this to continue to be an area of debate in Sacramento in the in the years to come. On the question of accountability, is there anything that looks like what we understand accountability to be happening around this situation, Lauren? It's a great question. Um, We know there were a flurry of bills, uh, you know, policies going through the the state legislature immediately after the pandemic. So they did some things like, um, yeah, require these checks between prison roles and unemployment roles. Um, The EDD was also required to come up with a recession plan for the next time things go south. Um, But I mean, I have to tell you, this kind of issue of accountability is something that has seemed elusive. Folks who have followed this much more closely say that, you know, like directors have come and gone. The EDD's gone through about six directors um, between the Great Recession and now about three of them just since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, And so I think it is kind of an open question. And again, the big theme is just that folks say this is so cyclical. We've seen this before where everyone uh, stressed out workers, the governor, the politicians get so mad at the EDD and pay really close attention in this moment of crisis when everyone needs unemployment. But then as that kind of fades, they lose interest. And these questions about accountability just kind of fall by the wayside. 
Well, I should note we ourselves reached out to EDD last week to participate in today's segment. We only heard back today saying that they could not secure a spokesperson in time for us. Well, I know you're going to be keeping an eye on that more than a billion dollars now over five years for the upgrades to call centers, the application forms, the identity verification systems, and so on. But thank you for your reporting on this, Lauren. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. And my thanks to listeners for sharing what they went through, what they are still going through, and their insightful questions and comments. Mark Nieto produced today's segment. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.